Once again, my name is Jeff, one of the elders here at the church. Glad you've come to worship Christ along with us. We do have a couple of announcements uh, before we get into the sermon time. Um, Those announcements are right there. So we have community groups throughout the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Most of you know that, but if you don't, we'd love for you to be in a group that's really where the life of the church is experienced, where we get to see the gospel transformation that we talk about each and every week. Because really, two things happen on a Sunday. You can uh, receive... um, uh, conviction and confession. Uh, you can hear the word preached, you can feel convicted, so therefore you confess. But through the week really is where we all experience repentance and fellowship. It's really where we see lives turn away from the world and towards Christ, and as we walk through that together with each other. And coincidentally, my wife and I, Jen, will be starting a new community group at our house this Tuesday. So if you're not in a group, we would love to invite you. Uh, I have the wonderful opportunity with the microphone to invite everyone to our group, so uh, please come. Uh, You can find our information online. Send me an email. We can uh, let you know our address. We also have corporate prayer tonight at 6 o'clock, so we're going to return back, gather together as the church to sing songs and hymns and praise, uh, but also pray with and for one another, our church and our city and other things like that. And we have a kids ministry training on January 5th at 10 o'clock. That's for every member who wants to be a part of the kids ministry, which hopefully everyone does. Uh, We need help. We want you to be a part of the blessing to get to preach the gospel to our children. So please come to that uh, ministry, uh, kids ministry training uh, on January 15th, which is a Saturday uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning. All right? Let me pray for us, and we'll we begin. Father, thank you so much for, uh, again, your grace. Thank you for your word, which we have, which we can hear from you on a daily basis. And Lord, please stir our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that is able to receive this truth today, Lord. Uh, it's a, it's a, a subject, a topic, um, uh, really a practice that is dear to your heart and foundational to the gospel. So pray, I pray, Lord, today that as we work this out, that you transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple other things. We do have the resource wall over there. Those books are free. We want you to use them. And then there's connect cards in front of you. And if uh, you happen to be, uh, you happen to forget today to fill out a connect card and drop it off in the collection baskets, uh, you can do it online. So if you go to the very front page of the, of the website, there's a button. You can click on that and send us a digital connect card. Those cards are there so we know how to pray for you or how we might be able to serve you in this time. So please fill those out. They're a benefit to us uh, so we can be a benefit to you. We do utilize them. So please uh, participate. That'd be great. Members, regular attenders, visitors, everybody. All right. So last week, um, we began this short letter from the Apostle Paul to Philemon. And I said that, uh, that we will be dividing this short letter into three different parts. So today, we're going to be looking at that second part, which we're going to be preaching on verses 8 through 16. So if you want to turn your Bibles there, Philemon, verses 8 through 16. And as you're doing that, I'll remind you, Philemon is only one chapter. It's in the New Testament, and it's right before Hebrews. So if you're having a hard time finding it, that's where it will be. And if you're going to use one of the Bibles in front of you, it's going to be in page 940. Now, last week, we learned that Paul in Philemon already had this rich fellowship with one another. Paul even calls Philemon, in verse 1, a beloved fellow worker. They were in the ministry together. And then he calls him a brother, uh, really a dear brother, in verse 7. In fact, it seems as though Philemon, like Epaphras in Colossians, 
was also likely brought to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. So Paul actually never went to Colossae where Philemon actually leads, uh, but he was likely saved by Paul's ministry in Ephesus at that time with Epaphras. Now, we gather all of that knowledge or much of that knowledge really from context clues and we sort of piece together information. But what we see in this text, what we can take from this text is that Paul really did trust the genuineness of Philemon's faith and he recognized and affirmed the fruitfulness, therefore, of his ministry. Now, just to remind us, again, Philemon was a leader in the church and not just one who had positional authority, but he had what oftentimes matters more, he actually had relational authority, all right? Which is why Paul's appeal here in this letter leans into the fact that Philemon had constantly been a refreshment towards the people of the church in Colossae because he was a strong example of Christ's love and faithfulness. Now, this all being true, this is where Paul really begins his appeal. So let's go ahead and read our text for today. We're going to read verses 8 through 16, and if you would please, and if you're able, stand with me in reverence for God's Word. This is Philemon 8 through 16. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he, indeed, uh, he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father, thank you again for this truth. Thank you for this word. Lord, as we work out this short but beneficial letter, Lord, give us great faith. Give us a deeper understanding in how we can really practically live for your glory and our good. We trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I said last week, this letter is about really that fundamental connection between redemption and reconciliation and that those things make up the foundation of genuine Christian fellowship. Our redemption and reconciliation make up, the found, uh, make up the foundation of genuine Christian fellowship because by our redemption in Christ, we're not just reconciled to God, which is incredible, but we're also reconciled to each other. And yet, both redemption and reconciliation require something. Redemption and reconciliation require something. In order for either to exist forgiveness must be given, all right? Forgiveness must be given. Now, the theme of forgiveness does run through and under this entire letter, but what's interesting is that Paul actually never directly mentions it, all right? It does run through and under this entire letter, but he doesn't directly mention it. Maybe it's because of the intimacy that Paul and Philemon shared in their friendship. Maybe it's because Paul would have known that Philemon already understood the biblical requirements of forgiveness, and therefore also the implications um, if he were to resist this command of God's word to forgive. 
After all, we did see last week that Paul recognized and affirmed that Philemon already grasped this gift of God's grace and love and his mercy, which is why here he actually doesn't appeal with doctrine, right? He doesn't talk directly about it. He doesn't appeal with doctrine or on the basis of his positional authority, which he had, but with the Christian's call to love. It's actually what he's doing. He's not appealing to doctrine. He's not appealing to his own authority. He's appealing with the Christian call to love. In verse 8, if you want to look at it, uh, Paul starts out with the word accordingly. Accordingly here just basically means all those things that I just said are true. Therefore, listen to this, verse 8, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now this here, these, these verses are really the heart of Paul's appeal. He is finally uh, telling us there in verse 10 what he's actually writing about. But what's also interesting is it's not until verse 17, which is going to be in our part 3, that he actually spells out his request. So he, he tells us what his request is, but he doesn't actually spell it out until verse 17. But of course, we already know what that is. Paul is calling Philemon to receive and forgive Onesimus, even though Paul knows how hard that's going to be, or how hard that might be, how hard it can be. Now, I already said that this letter doesn't explicitly talk about forgiveness. It's not explicitly in here. But let me quickly run us down this rabbit trail so we can actually understand, so I can explain the biblical uh, or what biblical forgiveness actually is with some foundational elements which are taught in the Bible for uh, this doctrine and practice of forgiveness. Okay, so Paul isn't specifically talking about, well, he is specifically talking about it, but he's not explicitly explaining it. So I just want to take some time to make sure that we understand the doctrine and practice of forgiveness. And John MacArthur's commentary uh, was a big help here. By the way, there's going to be seven points. There's going to be seven elements. So if, you want to, if you're taking notes. Number one, Jesus links the heart of unforgiveness with murder in Matthew 5, 21 through 24. In the command that God gave to not murder, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that God wasn't just talking about the physical act, all right? In that command, God is also forbidding malice and hate and anger and vengeance, all of which are emotions that exist within a heart that lacks forgiveness, now, since we all desire here at Maranatha to be faithful people, all of us want to follow after Christ, how might we fix this heart condition that we all wrestle with? Every one of us wrestles with this same heart condition. Well, the first thing that we have to do is that we have to try to see people as they are. We have to see people as they are. Like us, everyone has been created by God, and therefore, like us, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. We are all created by God, and we all fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we are instructed to love and forgive people regardless of circumstance. Regardless of circumstance, because they bear the image of God. And this idea, and the reason why it's so important, this idea, this practice, is what will help us to properly replace our lack of forgiveness with reverence for God. 
This idea of seeing people for who they are will help us replace our lack of forgiveness for the, purpose, for the person with a, a, a reverence for God. You see, forgiveness is really just selfishness. Unforgiveness is really just selfishness. And selfishness usually causes us to exaggerate the faults of others. For a moment, think about the second greatest commandment that Jesus gives us, right? Or that God gives us. Jesus tells us that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, in that way, as we're called to love others as ourself, love our neighbor as ourself, let's be honest, when we sin, we're all pretty quick to, uh, to excuse ourselves. Am I right? When you sin, you're pretty quick to excuse ourselves. After all, you have to live with yourself every single day, right? So it would be terrible if, if we didn't do that. Well, then if we're trying to practically apply or properly apply God's word and command to this, can you see how selfish it is if we then don't extend the same degree of forgiveness to other people? If we aren't quick to forgive as we are quick to forgive ourselves, we are operating in a selfish manner. Number two, whenever we feel that someone has sinned against us, they are ultimately first sinning against God. Whenever someone sins, they are ultimately first sinning against God. We must remember that no one could ever offend us more than we have offended God. Therefore, how unaware are we in regards to the mercy that we've received if we feel as though we can't forgive someone else? And in Matthew 18, verse 21 through 35, is eye-opening if, you want, if you're willing to understand this point. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, it's honestly eye-opening. There, what you'll find is Jesus' parable about the unforgiving servant. Community group leaders, this would be a great passage for conversation this week, to read this and try to understand this. The third point that I want to make. At the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, Jesus says something that should get everyone's attention. He says this at the end of the Lord's Prayer. He goes through, he gives them the example, our Father who art in heaven, all of that. And then he says this, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that we receive God's forgiveness for our redemption by our forgiving of others. That couldn't be what he's saying. That couldn't be true because that would go against the rest of the Bible and the rest of the gospel truth, which preaches free grace and free mercy. But what Jesus is teaching is that in some way, which in a way that we might not fully grasp, in some way we apparently can hinder our fellowship with God if we don't forgive one another. Now what also can be understood here is this. If we truly have experienced God's forgiveness, then we will be willing and ready to forgive others. Number four. This is probably pretty simple to understand, but a person who allows an unforgiving spirit to exist within them will eventually destroy the fellowship that they have with the people around them. If you live with this unforgiving attitude and spirit about you, people won't want to be around you. You will destroy that fellowship. Again, you can better understand this one by studying Matthew 18. Number five, 
if we, re- if we refuse to forgive someone, we are essentially stepping over or usurping the authority of God. This is what Paul teaches in Romans 12, 9 through 19. What he says there is that instead of holding out our forgiveness as a gift to be won or a prize to be won, we are to hold fast to love. We are to uh, show the person honor. We're to bless the people who persecute us or who sinned against us because we're not supposed to repay evil with evil. We don't live this way. We don't do these things because God promises that He will bring about the proper justice. We put our faith and trust in Him to do the things that need to be done to correct the hearts of others. He is the one who promises to bring proper judgment. We don't hold back our forgiveness because that would be us seeking to avenge ourselves. That's what Paul is teaching. Number six, unforgiveness makes us unfit for worship. Again, going back to Matthew 5, but this time verse 23 and 24, Jesus says this in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Unforgiveness makes us unfit for worship. Jesus is saying that there is absolutely no room for unforgiveness when it comes to biblical Christian fellowship. Jesus is so strict on this that he tells his church to stop their practice of worship so they can then first go and be reconciled to their brother and sister and then return. MacArthur makes a good point here. He says that when we're talking about this reconciliation, when we're talking about going to a brother or sister, that, uh, that both parties can initiate this reconciliation. Both parties are allowed to initiate reconciliation. Don't just sit back and allow the relationship to grow deeper in pain. If you've been offended or if you are the one who has offended, with humility, we are to seek restoration with each other. That's the call. Number seven. And this one might be the hardest advice for us. Forgiveness should be given even if the other person is not repentant. Forgiveness should be given even if the other person is not repentant. We see that example with uh, Stephen in Acts 7 verse 60. Now I know that at times when we are sinned against, it could feel like death, but Stephen was literally being murdered, and in the midst, he asked the Lord to not hold this act against those men who were murdering him because they didn't even know what they were doing. They weren't aware of their sin. Of course, we also see this with Jesus on the cross. In Luke 23, 34, we read how Jesus asked his father uh, to forgive the people who put him on the cross. He says, for they know not what they have done. Even though people are unaware of their sin and may not be repentant, we are called to forgive. Maranatha, this biblical charge that we've been given is that we must forgive even though we know that the relationship won't be restored until the person desires to be forgiven. But forgiveness is different than restoration. Because if we hold on to that poison while believing that it will hurt the other person, we grow in bitterness. 
Instead, what Christ desires for us, what all of this is leading to, what Christ desires for us is to be made like him. His desire is not for us to grow in bitterness, but to grow to be like him as we get to experience and serve each other with his love and mercy. Now, there's two things in this text. Getting back to our passage, there's two things in this text that are left to be discussed um, in, in this part two of our series. Paul is asking Philemon to do two things, to receive Onesimus and to restore Onesimus, because those are the two things that are required for forgiveness. To, 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 uh, to, to have forgiveness, we must have reception and restoration. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. Again, Paul could have told Philemon what to do. He could have told him what to do because Paul had that kind of authority over Philemon and over the church, but he knew that Philemon needed to make the right decision on his own. See, in order to have forgiveness, in order to allow forgiveness to happen, the offended person has to open themselves up and metaphorically take back the person who has offended them. Now, why would Philemon do such a thing? Right? Onesimus has sinned against him. He's returning. He's justified in his anger and frustrated. Well, there are three pieces of evidence that would prove that Onesimus is actually seeking reconciliation. There's three things going on here. The first piece of evidence is that Onesimus has been transformed. Right? He's now a believer. We know that. We talked about it last week. He, he did run away for, for whatever reasons he did so. He ran away, but as he returned, we know that he is now uh, a Christian brother. He has been transformed. Paul says that he became a father to Onesimus during their imprisonment. This is pretty common language for Paul here. He often, ta- he often calls those that he discipled his spiritual children because they were brought up in the faith really under his mentorship. Therefore, what he's telling Philemon by identifying Onesimus as a child is that Onesimus is his spiritual child, just like Philemon is, just like uh, Epaphras, just like Timothy are. Paul is indirectly making it clear that Onesimus possesses Christ's gift of redemption, which means he too is part of the kingdom family of God. The second piece of evidence is that Onesimus was apparently serving faithfully in the ministry with Paul, showing us that Paul trusted this man and trusted his faith to be true and real. He has affectionately even refers to Onesimus as his very heart. This term, uh, this is a term of endearment, which shows just how important Onesimus was to Paul. And Paul even tells him, he says, I would have enjoyed 
keeping Onesimus with me. I, I would have liked to keep him with me, but he understood the importance of unforgiveness. He understood how necessary and valuable it was that he sends Onesimus. He knew what forgiveness meant and how valuable their reconciliation, the reconciliation between these two men, how valuable it would be for them as well as for the entire church. Right? Think about what was actually going on. Think of Onesimus delivering the letter to Philemon and Philemon reading this letter as the man who's offended him is standing right there. Imagine the church as they see Philemon, their leader, receive and restore this man who has obviously sinned against him. Think of what all of this would have done and how it would, what it would have communicated to the church. And third, simply by Onesimus' return, it proves that he was repentant again. He returned. He came to Philemon. He left, really, a bit of safety and went to Philemon. Onesimus' willingness to return to his master, whom he did wrong, whom he did sin against, and who could have, by law, severely punished him, gives us real evidence that Onesimus desired to be forgiven because his heart was repentant. He went to Philemon because he was willing to make right what was wrong. He sought reconciliation because of his redemption. Now, Paul was asking Philemon to welcome back Onesimus, but he was also hoping for Philemon to restore the relationship with Onesimus. All right? And then Paul, and Paul does this by suggesting that this might have been God's providence uh, through the entire thing. Philemon's, or Onesimus' leaving and now returning could have been God's providence. Look at verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Forgiveness is in a lot of ways allowing a wrong to fade away without resolution in order to possess the relationship. Sometimes we have to allow, we receive the person back, even though things haven't been resolved in order to maintain and keep the relationship. Now, Paul is not denying that Philemon, that Philemon wasn't sinned against. He's not denying that Philemon wasn't offended. He's not asking Philemon to pretend that there wasn't a sin committed. But Paul does want Philemon to see Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ, which changes the relationship completely. And then to treat him accordingly, just as Christ treats his family. Maranatha, this is our truth. This is how we are to practically walk this out. We need to recognize that we are ambassadors for Christ. Every one of us who possess his spirit that guarantees our salvation, we are ambassadors of Christ. And how we live has an effect on the world and the people, of, people around us, including this church. When we truly forgive someone, it doesn't mean that we, uh, that we approve of their actions. It doesn't mean that we believe that all things have been made perfect already. But what it does show is that we understand, that we know our need for Christ, and we recognize our weakness, yet He is the one who is strong, right? 
When we forgive others, we recognize our need for forgiveness, our need for Christ, although He is the one who is strong and that He is the one who is willing to forgive. He is absolutely willing to forgive and that He is the one who is able to make all things right again. As we sit here and process, maybe you're thinking of people who you need to forgive. Maybe you're thinking of people who you need to go and repent to, to ask for forgiveness, but hear me, we give it freely because we've been given it freely. Next week, we'll continue on in this final part as this is a full letter, so we need to take it as a full letter. We'll continue with the final part of the Apostle Paul's appeal to Philemon for this entire subject. But until then, let's remember this. This week, let's remember this, that we are to show each other kindness and compassion by forgiving each other, just like how God has forgiven us in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for forgiveness. <laughs> thank you, Lord, that despite our faults, despite our sin, despite the fact that we have sought to be enemies against you, Lord, that you've changed us, that you have forgiven us, and therefore we have received redemption and we receive reconciliation with you. I pray, Lord, that we continue to let that wash over us and even overwhelm us as we go into our week and as we operate with one another. Help us to see our weakness. Help us to see our sins and our faults and ask and come in repentant hearts to be restored to you and to one another. In your son's name we pray in the power of the Spirit. Amen.